Have you ever tried to say his name properly? What, you pronou- you're supposed to pronounce the H. It's not a not bah. English. It's Bah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's Bhavin. Because <laughs> there's, there's two types of B in Gujarati. There's a Bah and a Bah. And this mine is, is exactly the same to me. <laughs> okay. Bah. Bah. Can you not hear the difference? <laughs> you're just of, doing You kind bah. of huffed a bit at the end of the last one. Bah. 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 <laughs> oh, so it's more like a burr and a burr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like the noises you make before you're about to throw up. <laughs> 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 That's grim. That's really grim. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to this episode of A Glass of Seawater. My name is Bavin Patel. Today I am joined by Chris. Hello. Will. Hiya. And Sarah. Hello. So, Chris and Sarah are both new to the podcast. Chris, why don't you just tell us what your research is, uh, who you are, what, why are you here? I am here because I'm on the Fusion CDT based at York. Um, I work with lasers. I look into something called laser wakefield acceleration, which is basically... That'll do. Next. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting to the cool bit here. We can, we can talk about... Surfing electrons. Sarah, what do you do? I... I do research into extreme ultraviolet lasers, so they operate at really short wavelengths, and I'm a fourth-year CDT student, and I'm here because I sit beside Bavin in the office. Yes, she does. <laughs> Lucky her. And he made me do this. <laughs> I did. <laughs> so today, we're going to talk about lasers. What lasers are, what we use them for, and what we're going to be using them for in the future. Okay, but first, what is a laser, guys? Well... It's like amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. Oh my god. Next episode. Well, okay. Well, this has been a glass of seawater. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we go into fundamental physics of it, I like, there's one thing you often will do in like second year laser physics. Go around and name where you find a laser. And I, I thought about doing that before we start this episode just to like... I gave it a quick Google and then I suddenly realized that there are lasers in everywhere that it's just... You just list off basically anything, and there's, if it's technology, Cupcakes. there's probably some sort of laser in it. Cupcakes don't have lasers. But you could do laser cutting you, on a cupcake. You could do yeah, laser cutting can, on a cupcake. Yeah. Or engraving. Well, I've been proven wrong. But you get them everywhere. <laughs> Speed cameras, heat sensors, loads of scientific diagnostics. Like use all them. Um, DVD players used to use lasers. DVD players yeah. use lasers. You can use them to measure small distances. You can use them all over the place. You One, can use them to measure large distances as well. That's how we know how far away the moon is. That's, yeah, that's People, true. Uh, we put retro reflectors on the moon, so you can fire a laser at the moon and then uh, see how long it takes to get back and see how far away the moon is. But you get about one photon back for every 10 to the 15 you send, so you need quite a chunky laser, unfortunately. So, like, uh, luckily, though, lasers do do that many photons. That is, yeah. <laughs> which is probably what we'll get onto in a bit. Just to, just to give you context, if, you, if we were to throw all of the humans on the Earth at the moon and hopefully they would bounce back because there's a trampoline there, Basically, none of them would get back. Like, a, b- a millionth of one person would get back. Yeah. We'd have to throw all the people on Earth a million times each at the moon, and one of them would get back. Before, before we uh, move on to this already very long introduction section, well, the, the best use of a laser I found on Wikipedia was for bird deterrent. Do birds not like lasers? Apparently not. Well, you can like, use them to deter... Don't need scarecrows anymore. Scarecrows... Outfitted with laser guns to deter so birds. Sounds like some sort of D and D character. Going on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know Evil what D and D is. 
Uh, come on, you're <laughs> never never heard of it. I I do cool things. <laughs> so what is what is a laser really like? What is it actually? So I I like to think of a laser as a, a photon cloning device. So oh, Jesus. you you get the uh, the photons that you need. Um, and you amplify them up, so that's where the uh, stimulated emission comes into. So you put your, your one photon through, and then that doubles up to four by the stimulated emission process, and this keeps going until you get very, very high numbers of photons all with the properties that you're looking for. So a photon, just to be clear, is a little packet of light. So light can come in little packets, and we call them photons. How is that different to a torch? Because, I mean, torches are just a bunch of photons that we're, like, generating. So what's the difference? It's like having lots of torches all being amplified into one tiny, tiny beam. Right. And is there anything special about that light? Uh, depending on the optics, you can change the wavelengths, you can change the intensity. And... I, but that's part of it, right? So there's, there's a laser's coherent. So uh, it all, all the light you produce in a laser points in the same direction, which means it travels a very long way. And it all is in time with each other. So when we think of a light uh, as a light wave, something oscillating up and down, the difference between white light from a torch and uh, laser light from a laser is um, all the laser light oscillates up and down at the same time. White light is all a bit jumbled up and a bit random. Laser light is very uh, coherent. Also, it's monochromatic. Right, so it's all one wavelength. Yeah. So you have different... Uh Different colors of light correspond to a different wavelength. So, like, literally one wave of light, how big that is. And normal light, uh, normal visible light's at what? Uh, microns? No. Nanometers. It's Nan hundreds, hundreds yeah. of nanometers. Hundreds of nanometers. Yeah. Okay. Between 400 and 700 or 800? Something like that, yeah. 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 So, it's... Um, and if by changing the wavelength, you have uh, different properties. So you can look at different things. So, radio waves are a lot longer have a lot longer wavelengths and all of the high frequency stuff you hear about like x-rays and gamma rays they were very very short wavelengths can i just add something on what will was saying about uh, properties of a laser compared to a torch uh, with laser light it's all uh, very directional so if you think of a, a bulb in a torch the light goes or a ceiling bulb the light goes in all directions so you get very even illumination Whereas um, lasers are designed so it goes all to the same point. Um, and this is one of its sort of key properties is because it's all uh, collimated, we call it. So sort of moving in a column, we can move it around. Uh, so bounce it off mirrors to get it into the locations we want. Um, and then we can focus it down. So all of that light gets to one, one location, which can then be... Uh, heated or other things compressed by by these photons um so yeah as a scientific tool it's re it's highly directional it travels over long distances and it's really easy to focus down and point at small places so it's great at heating and it's also great at measuring and also probing at getting into look at things so as a scientific tool lasers are invaluable uh so if you really want to bogged down in the physics, it's massively complicated and involves mixing classical physics with quantum physics. Uh, but seeing as we don't have three hours of people's attention and maybe only five minutes, let's simplify it down. So uh, with a laser, you can just think of a box, what we call a cavity, which has a bunch of atoms in it. Atoms can be either in an excited state 
or a non-excited state. If they're excited, it basically means they can emit a photon. So what we do is we create a bunch of excited atoms by putting photons into the system. So you can think of this system as a classroom with a bunch of kids in it. The kids are the atoms, and the photons you're passing uh, you can think of as tennis balls. So if you get all the kids lined up, and they're free, you know, they're, they're a gas, or maybe they're a solid, but they can move around a little bit, uh, and you give them the rule. So you say you're going to hand them out tennis balls, and if at any point they get given uh, a second tennis ball, so they're holding a tennis ball, and they get given another one, they have to throw both of them. That's the one rule they have. And you, we're going to assume that any tennis ball that gets thrown gets caught as well. So for the start, to start with, no one has any tennis balls. No one's very excited. We give one child a tennis ball. He becomes excited. Keep handing out those tennis balls. What we can do, once uh, we've got a few excited kids, a few kids with tennis balls, we can start handing out more photons into the system. So we're going to get tennis balls starting flung around. We have three situations. We're going to have either a kid... Doesn't, uh, a kid who doesn't have a tennis ball catches a tennis ball. That's absorption. That's one atom becoming excited. We're going to have a kid who does have a tennis ball catch another tennis ball, That's what, and he's going to throw both of those tennis balls. Uh, that's what we call stimulated emission. We put in one, and we get out two. And the other one is just that one kid with a tennis ball is going to get a bit excited and throw it on his own uh, choice. That's spontaneous emission. So a laser becomes a balancing act between this absorption, this spontaneous emission, and this stimulated emission. And what we want to do is get as many tennis balls in the air into the system as we possibly can. But that comes into a bit of complication, because if we're just handing out tennis balls, uh, we're giving an equal number of tennis balls to the kids who don't have them to the ones that do. So we're getting the same level of absorption as we are as emission. So we have to do something a bit more clever. Yes. Let's go back to photons and atoms now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so what Will was describing was, um, we would call it a two-level system. So there's the kids with no tennis balls and the kids with tennis balls. So this comes around in real life in atoms. And you can think of atoms as having like a ladder of energy levels. And you can jump from one rung up to the next. So for a laser to happen, you have to have a system where you can get all of your um, electrons up to a high, a higher level than their bottom rung. Um, and this is called a population inversion. This is key to creating a lasing medium. So the way this normally happens is the photon comes in and your electron goes up, so it goes up to a higher rung. But in the system that Will was describing, every time another photon comes in, and hits that rung, both of the electrons would be emitted as photons. So you have to have something called a three or four level system, which is basically there's another step where the electron goes to a different rung, and then that's this stable rung because there's not um, photons coming in and knocking it off that rung. So the, the key thing is in a two level system, we've got the high level and the lower level, but the amount of electrons jumping up is the same as the amount of electrons going down. So if we just pumping it, we're getting you know, the same number of kids catching tennis balls as there are throwing tennis balls. Yes. So we need this intermediate state to make sure that we have a net gain of tennis balls, if you will. Yes. So now we're talking in terms of energy states. So in terms of, in terms of you know, amount of energy, where are, these, where are these three levels in a laser system? You also have the ground state, which is the, the no tennis ball so system. That, that's, that's if something has no energy. Yeah, so no, no energy. Then you'll have the, the pump state. So this is when it absorbs 
a photon takes that energy and goes to a higher higher level state. There will then be the metastable state, which will have slightly less energy. And metastable being a fancy word for not very stable. Yes, but more... Or st- not, not completely stable. It's more stable than the other states, but less stable than completely stable. Yes. <laughs> so I think what you have is you basically excite your atoms, you excite the electrons to a high state, and then uh, normally they either fall down very quickly, but what you can actually do is get them to fall to this metastable state where they actually stay there for a lot longer. And because they're staying there for a lot longer what you can do is you can actually start piling a whole bunch of them into this state. So instead of having stuff going up and down, up and down very, very quickly, stuff starts to build up at this metastable state. And then when you have that kind of huge buildup of excited electrons, what you can do is you can get all of them to release all at once. And then you have a bunch of uh, photons that are emitted that are all in the same phase, all coherent, they're all doing the exact same thing. Which are fancy words for at the same time and in the same place. So we talked about um, getting all of these atoms to these excited uh, to these excited states to get all the get them on the higher rungs. So how exactly would we go about doing that? There are a few different ways of doing that. Uh, the normal method is to use flash lamps. So these are lamps that emit radiation. Essentially, they're synchronized in time and space, and that's all then fed into the lasing medium. So the la- the lasing medium there is the three-level system that we've had a go at explaining. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this that's essentially feeding some light into a ladder. And then the laser cavity goes on to... Uh, so it's amplified, and then, and then that kind of produces your laser, really. Um, yeah. That's it. So at that point, we've now got a bunch of light that's fed into the system, which are the, you know, all these energy levels going up and down, and that's just all being amplified in this one system so we're slowly building up a high concentration of photons in our laser cavity our box of laser medium so what do we do if we want some actual light to get out of our system so we well there's two types of lasers really there's continuous lasers so if you think of a a laser pointer um you you press a button and you get a beam coming out this this will have uh this cavity so that's where the, the light is built up. The laser box. The laser box. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then that will have, one end will have a really good mirror and the other end will have a mirror that's only 90% effective. And the light will come out of that end and you'll get your nice beam. Because all, we, all we've essentially got is just a box that's got, you know, some atoms in it and there's light bouncing back and forth. Yes. And that's just, you know, that our amplification process is this photon cloning thing. And if we just let a little bit of light leak out one side... We just get laser light out one side. And then the other the other operation is called pulsed. Um, and this is basically when we we pump all of the the gain medium, so we put all of the electrons up into their um, metastable state, and then we uh, we sw- flick a switch, and then all of our uh, our photons go through, and they get massively amplified. And we get a very uh, bright pulse coming out. Um, and this system will have something called a high peak power, um, which is very useful for physics experiments. Um, so l- lasers can be sort of quantified 
by I'd say three terms. So yeah. the, the energy they produce, the power that they are at, um, and the intensity that they can focus to. So Sarah, I'm going to shove this on you. Can you briefly give us a difference between what we mean by energy, what we mean by power, and what we mean by intensity? Because those are really key terms in laser physics. Yeah, so the energy of a laser will be determined by the amount of energy that that beam of light puts onto a surface or a target or yeah. something. So like heat, speed. Yeah. Well. So normally with laser physics, we talk about uh, a laser will heat a target. Uh, the power of the laser is then that amount of energy in the amount of the pulse duration. So if you've got uh, energy of X and a pulse duration of Y, your power is X divided by Y. Mm. Right? Uh, and then the intensity is for a focused laser, you talk about the surface area that is hit and the amount of energy that is delivered in the amount of time on that surface area. So then would that just be the power divided by the area? Yes. Okay. So then you you can imagine having like um, uh, a beam with a lot of energy, but if it takes um, a lot of time, then it's got low power. Yeah. And if, it take, if it's over a big area, then it's also got low intensity. So I'm, I imagine for a lot of experiments, you want something that's a lot of energy in a very, very short amount of time in a very, very small focused area. Yes. And uh, when we talk about short uh, amounts of time, we are talking, I think, in the physics that everyone in this room does, that's the top end, sort of, the, the lengthiest laser pulse is nanoseconds. So this is... Uh, Unless you're talking BAVs physics, then it's microseconds. Yeah. But so, like, <laughs> just, just to sort of get an idea what the difference between energy and power is, like, and why lasers are so impressive, just... You can eat a Mars bar, you can get all that energy, but it you know, works into your system over days, or at least hours, right? Uh, but if you have that amount of energy in a laser pulse, if you deliver that in a nanosecond, suddenly you're completely obliterating anything you hit it with. So you know, the distinguishing thing between energy and power, it, it doesn't just matter how much energy you have, it matters how quickly you deliver it to your target. And that can be the difference between you know, just making a bit of chemical energy to move your muscles and destroying your stomach with a massive laser beam. Yeah, it's like the difference between something slowly burning versus exploding. Mm -hmm. Yes. But exploding things are cooler. And then if you go a step further and you, you know, deliver that in a really small area, then it's also really damaging. Because you can, you can have laser beams that have really high power that you can stand in because they're, you know, big 60 centimeter beams. But as soon as you focus that down to a micron, suddenly they're going to do a lot of damage to whatever you drill aim a hole, them at, drill and a then hole you should just stand a I mean, if I put my hand in like a really powerful laser, would it burn a hole through my hand? You'd struggle to get it through the vacuum system, but but yes. You blow a lot. You're basically going to superheat a very small portion of your hand, which is going to expand rapidly, and it's going to cause some amount of explosion on would your you, skin. Whether would you recommend to, it? No, definitely not. Okay, don't put hand in powerful. But interestingly, <laughs> that it'll that will never happen because. To, to get your hand in front of a laser system like that, it's going to basically uh, destroy the air before it even gets to your hand. So you'll never be able to just place your hand in front of a massive laser system. Yeah, so I think, like yeah. you mentioned earlier, apart. Will mentioned earlier that these lasers have to travel in a vacuum, otherwise they're going to start hitting the air and doing weird stuff to the air. So all of these like super-powered lasers that we're going to start talking about in a bit... All of them have to be in a very high vacuum, otherwise the laser is just going to obliterate the air. Sometimes you do have them at air, 
the, the laser in the lab next to mine um, is very high power because it's very short um, pulse. Uh, and if you put your hand in front of it while you're wearing a surgical glove, it changes the color of the surgical glove. Really? Yeah. And that's in the low power mode. Oh, okay. So dangerous. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> See, this it is changes this... your purple surgical gloves to pink. This is why it's nice to have experimentalists because they've actually done it. It's great. <laughs> but yeah. So, you, not, <laughs> haven't seen it so much in this country, but if you get if you're trying to time some of your laser pulses, uh, sometimes the flash if they're ionizing the air if they're creating plasma in air you can't see them, but they make a, a snapping sound, really mm. high rate snapping sound. So you can actually, uh, if you're trying to combine two laser pulses together, you can do it by by hearing by listening to them, because you'll get like this, just uh, indistinguishable snapping, and then suddenly if you if you time one laser pulse, move it slightly. Suddenly, you've got two laser pulses arriving at the same time, and the sound of the snapping will increase. So you can actually properly time laser pulses just by listening to them blow the air apart. That is actually quite cool. Yeah. So what, why don't we talk about the, the history of the laser, like when all of this started, because we've been saying what lasers are and how they work, but we should give everyone a time frame of when all of this started to happen. So when was the, when was the first idea about this? Well, so Einstein uh, sort of came up with the idea of, or came up, discovered stimulated emission, uh, which is really the sort of the starting point for the laser, the laser story. And then, yeah, well, it, a, a short forty or so years later, uh, we came up with the first laser system, uh, which was you a, a ruby-based laser system. So our gain medium um, that's causing all this stimulated emission was a ruby. Uh, by Dr. Ted Maiman in 1960. So it took us a little while to figure out how to actually realize this thing. Ted Maiman was the, the first guy who made a laser. Mm -hmm. what, who started to really develop the laser? When did it start getting into its own? So first day, we, uh, we, we just had a continuous wave laser. So we just popped it on and laser light would come out. And uh, then we talked about how it's beneficial. You can get packing more energy into a shorter pulse. So then we started looking at a pulse operation laser. So whereas continuous wave is this long beam of constant uh, photons coming out of the laser, a pulse one would be bursts of photons. So basically it's turning off uh, super quickly and then the next step was to try and compress those pulses down to get the same amount of energy into a shorter and shorter pulse. Right, so to increase the power. Yes. But this all came around very quickly. So we've just said that the Ruby laser was made in 1960. Um, and then they went over to this pulsed laser by, uh, I think, 61, 62. Um, so that's a very, very quick turnaround. Um, and that was done by Fred McClung and Robert Wellworth. And they're, this switch... Helworth. Helworth. Apologies to these <laughs> very important people in scientific <laughs> history whose names we're completely butchering. So who was it who did Q-switching, Chris? I don't know. I'm going to ask Bav to say that name. <laughs> I don't even know what Q-switching is. Q-switching is basically um, a very fast shutter. Um, and you you turn your laser on and off on very quick timescales. So when I say quick, I mean nanoseconds. So that's uh, zero point and then nine zeros, one seconds. Uh, no, it's 0 0.8 zeros and then one. <laughs> you fool. <laughs> I was having that realization as I said it, but I couldn't remember which way. The pressure's too much. That's documented now, that mistake. <laughs> I was in the right ballpark. You were in the right ballpark. We're not, we're not astrophysicists, though. We work to numbers, not magnitudes. 
one of the most simple ways to visualize cue switching. So uh, because because of what laser is, is essentially light backing, uh, bouncing back and forth between two mirrors. If you just take one of those mirrors and rotate it, the light only bounces back and forth when those mirrors are perfectly parallel. So if you're rotating one of your mirrors, only once every revolution, assuming it's not a double-sided mirror, uh, are you going to have perfect alignment. So you're only going to have lasing during that perfect alignment. So just by rotating one of those mirrors, you can pulse. Um, so are you just spinning these mirrors very, very quickly then? Yeah, that's one way you, that's one way you can Q-switch. You take one mirror and you just rotate it. Oh, wow. I didn't think they'd done it by spinning mirrors. Yeah, you can do it by spinning mirrors. You can also do it with Pocal Cells, but you can do it with spinning mirrors. You can do it with what? Pocal Cells are basically um, things that you pass current through and become reflective or not reflective. Oh, that seems like a much better way of doing it. It's, I mean, that's it's a faster basically way of doing a light it. switch. Okay. Apparently, you can make a laser. It was very Scottish of Andrew to suggest this, but apparently, they've made a laser out of whiskey. So, mode locking was the next development, um, and that was done in 63. Um, and. This is basically, you have multiple modes in a cavity. So, so you, you can imagine a mode like a guitar string oscillating. You have different shapes that um, a guitar string can oscillate in. You get something called harmonics. So this is basically if the whole string is oscillating back and forth, that's your the lowest harmonic. You can try this at home, actually. If you get like a, a, a long piece of string or rope and tie one end to something and then wave it up and down, if you do it uh, gently, you'll only have that will be the lowest level harmonic, and you'll, the whole thing will go up and down. If you go faster, you'll start to have a node in the middle, and this will be where the middle stays stationary, and the the two separate bits then oscillate back and forth, like a snake wiggling up and down. Yes, um, and you basically have an infinite number of these modes. So it goes one one node in the in the string, then two, then three onwards. Um, and so all of these are happening in the laser cavity because this is basically what you're doing. You're having the, the band wobble up and down. Um, and mode locking is where you lock all of these different things together and then you get a massively high, high intensity peak coming out because all of, the, all of the peaks of the different waves add together. Yeah. Um, so imagine, so light, light's a wave, like we said before, and... Like, like a guitar string oscillating between your fingers and the point you've tied it to, it's light bouncing back and forth between uh, two surfaces. So you have a certain number of modes that can exist, and basically when everything oscillates up in one direction, that creates a large amount of pulse. So uh, if, you, if you just turn on your laser like normal, that just makes lots of random patterns in your continuous wave. But if you do something clever to the medium... Uh, you could basically force it to lock itself into these modes where you basically get nothing, 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 high peak of pulse, and then nothing, 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 high peak of pulse. So we've had um, this cue switching where we have the, the shutters opening really quickly and we uh, so you get small pulses out, and then we've also had uh, mode locking where you basically have a bunch of waves combining together to get a really, really big wave. And then you make sure that only the big waves can pass through. So, I mean, the, all the stuff we've been talking about have been implemented in big old national labs. Yeah, and big new national labs. And big new national labs, whereas when you're, when you're at the very forefront of technology, you're, you're going to be working on a lab bench as a PhD student in some, I want to say dingy laboratory, but it's not that no, dingy, it's, it's quite nice actually. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, what's your next, 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 next step, Jen? 
So my laser is completely different in, in nearly every way from what we've talked about so far. So uh, forget everything we just talked forget about. Forget everything we just said. So and we'll have another hour. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, the main difference with my laser is that the gain medium isn't a crystal. So the gain medium on my laser is actually a plasma instead of a crystal. So the way my laser works is we've got a capillary tube, which is about the width of a pencil and it's hollow and it's about 21 centimeters long and uh, we fill that full of argon gas and then we ionize that so we use a series of electrical pulses um, which ionize the argon gas to neon like argon so you ionize it to the, the next level noble gas so you're taking out eight electrons and then that creates plasma this then emits the radiation that we want. So we want it to be 46.9 nanometers and the lasing for uh, argon, neon-like argon plasma is at 46.9 nanometers. So the lasers down in Oxford that both Will and I have been using, uh, one is 1,000 nanometers and the other is 800. So this is very, very short yeah, the, we have a, a green laser in the lab, which is 532 nanometers. Right, so we're getting to very much like UV light. So this is this is the gray area. This is called extreme ultraviolet or X-ray ultraviolet because it's kind of in this bit in between X-rays and ultraviolet. Right. So that's how short the wavelength is. But because it is such a weird area of the electromagnetic spectrum, it is actually absorbed in air. My entire laser system is under vacuum. So we're pumping argon into a vacuum system to ignite it, and then that produces the laser. Well, you're ionizing it, and you're taking out eight electrons. Yeah. So what, what, what's lasing? What's emitting the, the photon? I don't, I don't understand that. The plasma is then acting as the gain medium. So it starts emitting the electrons, and this is why the plasma is 21 centimeters long, because then as they are emitted and then passes through the plasma that it's generated itself, that then acts as the gain medium and that essentially does all its amplification at the 46.9 nanometer. And why are the free electrons all at 46.9? Why are they not just emitting left, right and centre? That's just that transition. Energy. I see. Okay. And then... So there's, yeah, there's just a set energy level that these free electrons are... If, it, if you have a shorter capillary, you get emissions all over the place mm. because they haven't had the oh, So it's specific to the laser it's, cavity size. So right. if you have a really short capillary, the first time they made this laser, it was made with a three centimeter long capillary and they just got emission from loads of different energy levels. They then made the capillary slightly longer and noticed that there was one of the peaks in the energy levels was a lot higher than the others. So then they made it slightly longer. And it eventually became so intense, that peak, that it's pretty much the only one you can see. So, correct me if I'm wrong. So, the benefit of a plasma laser... So, one of the problems we talked about with damaging your optics as you pass a as a laser through, you damage your crystal if it's too intense. But because a plasma can't be damaged, there's essentially not a limit to how much energy you can put through. Yeah, that's true. The one issue is that it's not got a laser cavity. So you're talking about all the oscillations in your laser cavity earlier. Because it's a plasma, you can only pass through it once. Okay. But could you put multiple plasmas in a row? Could you like repeat the process in a chain? This is then the payoff for that is that you get a weird beam shape. Okay. So 
the beam that comes out of my laser, instead of being a dot, is a little circle. So what I like to think of is a donut-shaped beam. Okay, that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason why that happens is because you get refraction of the light. So you get refraction of light through glass, through your water, the way your straw looks like it's not straight in your glass. You get that with the laser light, and that produces this annular beam. So you have to make your plasma longer but if you make it too long then you get a really big donut at the other end and if it's shorter then you don't get a donut but you don't get this one intense peak so you have to find the balance between how long your capillary needs to be to get this perfect well pretty good yeah uh intensity but also shape yes what are potential applications of your laser that that current lasers can't do so my laser uh I'm mostly looking at using it for technology advancements. So when you're making computer chips, you want to make, put as much information on as small a chip as possible. With a shorter wavelength than the other optical lasers, you can essentially fit more on. So I can get, you know, 46.9 nanometers, mm. whereas an optical laser could only get the 500. Yeah, so you're talking about if you're using one of the other applications of lasers, if you're etching onto a surface, the yeah. smaller, smallest detail you can create is dependent on the wavelength of your laser. Yes. So essentially the, the limit of how small the focus can be for my laser is much smaller than that of other lasers. Also, because the wavelength is so short, when the photons emitted from my laser travel through... Uh, plasma material which is what you get when a laser hits the surface of a target it can with an optical laser the wavelength is too long and it just gets stopped with my laser the wavelength is so short it can keep going so you get really narrow and really deep holes whenever you blow at things and that problem is also a real issue in ICF that's one of the reasons that we double and triple our uh, wavelength is because you get deeper penetration of lower wavelength triple the frequency triple the frequency Oh yeah, third the wavelength, triple the frequency. You get better penetration of short wavelength light into plasma, so better coupling of your laser into plasma. So if we can, you know, short wavelength uh, laser science is really interesting uh, because, well, all the reasons we just said, right? It's just really interesting and really useful. That so, that is another application of my laser is that we are looking for using it as like a high power as a, a way of ablating the ICF targets. Mm-hmm. But another application of it is that it creates what's called a warm, dense plasma, which is really similar to the compression stage in an ICF reaction. So using my laser, we can then develop diagnostics in the lab in the university rather than having to develop diagnostics on massive labs like NIF, where it costs hundreds of thousand pounds every minute. You can do it in the university for hundreds of thousand pounds for a lifetime. So, like, as a tip for our listeners, don't put your Always hand. wear laser goggles. And don't put your hand in the beam. Yes. Well, or knock an optic, yeah. because that's really annoying. <laughs> I think, Knocking the optic's probably the, the top one there. I think I put my hand in a beam. I think the real question <laughs> is, what do lasers taste like? Probably slightly metallic. Well, I think if we... Well, I guess purple would taste like aubergine. Red, <laughs> red would taste like... Strawberry? I guess Strawberry. Infrared would just taste like heat. It would taste like, like no, spicy. It'd be spicy. Spicy, yeah. Spicy infrared, green apple. I kind of like sour apple, green. Okay, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) 
That was a great episode. That was a really fun episode. I learned so much. Same. Even though I may have not been in it. Same. So I think uh, for our many listeners, we would really appreciate if you subscribe to our podcast on whatever app you're listening on. Yeah, and check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Just search A Glass of Seawater and we'll come right up. Finally, just uh, if you can, leave us a review on iTunes. That would be incredibly helpful. That would really help us. It greatly increases the visibility of the podcast, probably more than anything else. And tell all your friends and enemies. That was a really good episode. I enjoyed it and I learned a lot. See you next time for the next glass of seawater. Bye.